This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. So I'm here to tell the story about my father. And I remember the day when I received a phone call from his physician telling me that there was really nothing more we could do for his cancer and that it was time to go on hospice. I remember that day vividly because I was in lecture in my first year of medical school and the phone call came from a pretty well-known hepatologist who ran this really wonderful integrated medical treatment team specifically for people who had cancer of the liver and I received this phone call I I went outside of the lecture hall and I just listened as he was telling me that he thought my father would die likely in six months or less and that the treatments that he was receiving was for palliative measures only and that ultimately would give him a couple extra months of life. Welcome to Health Stories. These are real stories inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to listen in to the real stories of clinicians and patients. In these interviews, we ask our guests to reflect on their experiences and to share with all of us their insights and suggestions for how we might navigate our very complex U.S. healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and today I am very glad to be welcoming a uh, physician, Dr. Gretchen. She's going to be sharing a story of being an end-of-life caregiver uh, for her father, who uh, was diagnosed with cancer and the use of medical cannabis. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gretchen. Thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's uh, it's hard to sort of break in the middle of your story. Um, would you mind going back in uh, to the phone call that you received and what happened next? Sure. So... I was lucky to have a really good relationship with the physicians who were caring for my dad. As a first year medical student, I really knew nothing about medicine and I was trying desperately to learn everything I could. And thankfully, the physicians who cared for my father embraced me and really called me personally every time there was an update and gave me their phone numbers to call them whenever I needed help or had a question. So that day, I knew it was coming, but of course it it hits you out of nowhere. And I feel like I knew I knew he was going to die, and I knew that hospice care was the right path for him. I just was so helpless because I couldn't do anything. And that's something important for me as a physician to remind my patients is that when the end of life is near, 
you still have a lot of life and that you're living up until the moment you die. And hospice was a wonderful way to help ease that pain when death is so near. So what was it like for you being both a daughter and a med student getting a... Well, actually, I should back up and say, did you get the phone call before your parents did about his diagnosis and and how he was doing because you were a med student? Well, because I was his caregiver and his only daughter and really took the initiative in his care to coordinate everything. So when the physicians called, they called me. So you got the phone call before he did? Yes. What was that like? It was hard. It was hard because I had to tell him. And he knew. He knew he was dying. And we had conversations about it. But I felt that that was the way I could help, is kind of coordinate all this medical jargon and tests and treatments and scheduling um, so that he didn't have to worry about it. What I learned from that experience was to ask for help. Uh, At the time that the phone call came, uh, it was about three months into first year medical school. So my father was sick. He, he, He was undergoing palliative care, so care that would hopefully ease his pain and hopefully extend his life, but not curative care. Um, following a diagnosis that happened approximately six months before I started medical school. So at that time, I was in the frenzy of trying to learn everything about everything when it comes to medicine, so biology, physiology, pharmacology, anatomy, and um, going home at night and trying to understand how I could help my dad, who I never looked at. I never looked at him as my patient. I always looked at him as my father, but I felt that I had to care for him. And I did my best to do that. Uh, Something I realized about being in that situation is that once someone is labeled with a chronic disease or a terminal illness, that it's very hard to escape that label. So we didn't really talk about cancer. We talked more about life and the quality of the life we had together rather than the quantity. And so now as a physician, as a family physician who embraces families and and cares for my patients as well as their families in a very holistic way. Having this experience has really helped me empower my patients to ask for what they need and to really live out the life they have left. Yeah, I want to get into more about what all of us can 
learn from your experience being both patients and caregivers and facing palliative care and end-of-life care. But before we get into that, um, so it's sort of a precursor of where we're going to go later, um, going back into um, the story, some of the things that you went through, because I'm hearing you say you're a caregiver for your father, and being in a really unique situation of starting medical school. And so you're learning about the physiology and the biology be you know, behind the human body and medicine. And then you're faced with the everyday experiences that your father's facing and being his daughter and caregiver. Um, can you talk more about what that was like for you and um, sort of the, the challenges and sort of the struggles of, of being in two worlds? Because it feels like there's two very different worlds. Yeah, I was kind of at the cusp, so to speak. Um, really, I really felt that I knew nothing, and sometimes I still do, because there's just so much to know. And to be honest, this experience was a wonderful learning experience and a real experience rather than a book experience. I found that navigating the healthcare system was difficult. Um, and I, I feel for my patients now who have the same difficulty. And what I mean by that is, oh, I need to make an appointment to go see a specialist. And the specialist only has this time available. And most people are working or in school at that time. So how, how do I change my life to get to this appointment with this person that I really need to see. That was a struggle. Um, just trying to understand all the different treatments that are out there. And there's so many, and there's so many drugs and treatments and different ways, um, different algorithms that people use to treat diseases. And just trying to get good information as a as a person as a caregiver um, in regards to someone you love it's it's hard to sort through all that information and I understand now being a physician why it's so important to really look at evidence-based medicine and try to see the different ways to treat people and what the outcomes are because when you're involved in understanding a treatment plan and you don't really understand what it means it can make it very difficult you know people talk at you and tell you things and you feel vulnerable and intimidated and afraid to ask questions and so i i can relate to people who are dealing with some serious illnesses because it's scary. And especially when you are facing something that's going to take your life, you feel out of control. So for me, being, being a medical student, I mean, that was, that was like my job. My job was to go to school and um, taking care of my dad was my life. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to have him around for long. I was also pregnant with my first child and had those feelings that 
you know, my dad would never meet my child. And I, I was also a patient at the same time too. So many different levels of being a patient. And then also many different levels of trying to navigate the healthcare system. Just the um, opening, in the opening story, I keep coming back to that moment where the physician says on the phone, this is terminal. You know, he, he has six months or left to live. And for those who are listening who have been through that before, or who dread the moment where they hear that of a loved one, thinking about how medicine is often this emphasis on you can do it, you can fix it, you can extend life, life at all costs. And you're going through medical school learning about how to heal the body, how to fix the body. And you're getting, given this diagnosis, for, or told the diagnosis for your father is terminal, and there's nothing that can be done. How do, you, how do you make sense of that? I don't know if you ever can really make sense of it. I guess you can say it's the cards you've been dealt. This is the way life goes. I'm very cautious when I tell people a diagnosis because it they carry it for the rest of their lives. And so having a diagnosis of cancer is one heavy burden. <clears throat> having a diagnosis of a terminal disease is another. And we have to be mindful of that as physicians that you know, we say one thing to someone and that one thing sticks with them and everything else we say is just kind of in the background after that one word comes out. And that word that the physician told me on the phone was hospice. Mm -hmm. And that connotation that hospice is this scary, scary situation to be in. And it was very scary for me. However hospice was one of the most amazing gifts that the healthcare system could have gave to me um, as a daughter, as a caregiver, um, and really enlightened my understanding of how important the conversations of end of life are and what to do if, and how can we make this so much more comfortable for you and support your family too. Yeah, I want to get into um, the cannabis marijuana part. So we're going to get into that in a minute because uh, we haven't we haven't touched on that yet. That how many people believe that hospice means life is over, there's no more life, uh, and so they fear that term. And from a medical perspective, their their physicians and specialists treated them the same way too. Well, we're done. There's nothing more we can do because we can't save your life, right? So we're done. Did you get any of that? Have you heard this before? Is this ring true? I, ha I have heard it before. And there are a lot of primary care physicians who will continue to care for their patients while they're on hospice. But there are also hospice organizations where there's a 
physician who runs the hospice program. So dependent on where patients go, they may either have the hospice organization's medical director to, to write their prescriptions and to care for them, or they'll have their primary care doctor do it through the organization. Um, and yes, you do feel like that when, and, but hospice is a, is an insurance benefit too. And so following that change of insurance, you can't go back to a specialist. You can't go back for curative treatment. Everything is now palliative, but and under this umbrella of hospice. So there is a loss of relationships there. And it, it's very sad because you do feel abandoned in a sense. However, if you have a good hospice organization, they will embrace you and support you in ways that we never, ways that we did not receive from the other physicians. For example, we had um, nurse practitioners come in and we had RNs come in. So it was more not so physician-based, but it was more provider-based or caregiver-based. And these were people who really had a passion for what they did and so attentive to detail, very strong on education. And so I felt that I was getting more support as a caregiver when I was in hospice with my dad because they understood the importance of that time and that limited time that we had together and really helping his life, um, helping him have the best quality of life that he could in the end. And so I want to I want to bring up the topic of marijuana or cannabis. Um, I know this is a topic that for many remains controversial because of the use. It's legalized in some states and, and not in others. Um, the Lancet in 2016 had an article on its use as an analgesic um, because of opioid right, painkillers and some of the negative effects on that. Nursing Times and other um, groups have also talked about sort of ethical dilemmas and legal dilemmas um, and challenges as well. Um, and uh, Pally Med had a 2015 article talking about and advocating for its use in palliative medicine. There's a lot of, of benefits um, from using it. There's also a lot of um, still remaining uh, controversy in uh, healthcare about its use. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the decision for your father to, to use cannabis during his, his time and, and what that was like for you? As a caregiver. Absolutely. So in hospice care, um, my father was supplied with as many opiates as he could ever possibly need. I mean, when he died, we had bottles and bottles of very strong prescription opiates, which were the mainstay and what most people saw as the way to treat people with terminal pain cancer-related pain. Um, and my father chose to use cannabis. And really, I chose to advocate for cannabis as a result of his experience because 
cannabis treated him in more than one way. So yes, there's been a prohibition for cannabis on cannabis and hemp for years now, which has really prevented any progressive research to be done because it's still a schedule one narcotic. Um, Thankfully, there are states that have created their own laws to recognize the medicinal benefits of this very ancient plant. And so my experience with my dad was I could see him rolling a cannabis cigarette and sitting out on our porch and feeling a weight of disease lift off him. And the beautiful thing about this medicine is that it's it's patient titrated. So it gives the patient control when they feel like they have no control. Rather than me being a physician and saying, here, you take this every six hours is needed for pain and you take it, take it on a schedule, people who use cannabis can really learn what works for them. And unfortunately, when my dad was using it, it was not legal in Pennsylvania. And as a medical student, um, you know, it's, I, I spoke to my class and told them about my story, um, especially in the last days of my dad's life where you know, you're giving someone liquid morphine with liquid Ativ- or with benzodiazepine, which is Ativan, kind of broken up into it and injecting this heavy narcotic in someone's mouth to help them with their breathing and to help them with their pain around the clock. And what I really wanted to do at that point was to give my father some kind of cannabis because I could see when he was still alive and awake and living life, how much it helped him, how much it dulled his nausea and made him want to eat. And we take eating for granted. You know, we had a lot of, a lot of dinners together towards the end of his life. And it really holistically treated him mentally, spiritually, physiologically, um, gave him quality of life, and gave him some control. But he was using it for as um, a medicine to combat pain. He was using it as a medicine to combat nausea and abdominal discomfort and um, cachexia, right? Not, not wanting to eat, anorexia. Um, so he was using it for its medicinal benefits on a multitude, on a spectrum, for a spectrum of ailments. Um, and more of it, it sounds like. And more of it. Yeah. But he was he was burning it. So he was combusting it. And what is wonderful about the legality in Pennsylvania now for patients is that people don't have to smoke it, which is great because you don't burn the plant and ultimately get all these chemicals that are involved with the smoke. You can vaporize it, which means that you can bring it up to a temperature to allow it to release into a gas form, bypassing all those additional chemicals you get from combusting it. But now for people who are on hospice, they have 
sublingual that you can put in your mouth. They have edible that are all um, edible medicines that you can take that have established doses that are quality controlled, right? So the cannabis my father was smoking, I don't know who produced it. I don't know who grew it. I don't know what chemicals or pesticides they used in it. I don't know if there was any molds or heavy metals in it. So for patients that were sick, having safe access to quality medicine is one of the most amazing things about the laws that are changing now and empowering those people to use the medicine that, that helps them that is also safe. So over the past few years, because I want us to transition now a little more into the, the clinician side of it and being a physician. So this happened a, a few years ago. And in the past few years, what, what changes have you seen in the medical community accepting and being more open to medical cannabis? And also what pushback do you continue to, to get? So I see a lot of curiosity and the need for more education. The endocannabinoid system is this amazing system in our body that most physicians are not that well educated on just because we didn't really learn a lot of it in medical school. Uh, thankfully, I had a wonderful pharmacologist who presented this to us during pharmacology and kind of fueled my interest in it early on, but people were curious. And as physicians who you know, we walk this path of evidence-based medicine, one of the difficulties we have with cannabis is the lack of evidence. There's a lot of evidence coming out of Israel. There's evidence coming out of the UK. Um, Canada has a really wonderful medical cannabis, um, a, a lot of literature based on it. And slowly here we are too, but it's still a, still stigmatized in a way. But I think that the time is changing. And I'm grateful for that because I believe that there are a lot of patients who, who do not want to take opiates, who are afraid of the side effects or the dependency or addiction related to taking these really heavy narcotics, which has been the mainstay of treatment for chronic pain, for um, end-of-life care, for a lot of... for spasticity and multiple sclerosis. Um, and so offering people an alternative that is a more natural alternative that ultimately they could go out in their garden and grow themselves if they were so inclined like they do in California. Um, offering that option and really empowering them to, to find something that helps them. I believe a lot of physicians are behind that. It's just that when something's illegal on a federal level and we've spent years in education and a lot of money to go to medical school and investment in our brains and our careers, getting behind something that is ultimately deemed as not of medical value is frightening. Yeah, I can't help but wonder as I'm listening to you talking about your dad using cannabis and I'm picturing him, you know, smoking and you're going to classes in med school. Did you get any warnings, teachings, discussions about marijuana use or medical cannabis when you were in med school? We learned about medical cannabis and we learned about the endocannabinoid system because um, it's been 
in the works and people have been researching it. And so kind of understanding that there's 10 times more cannabinoid receptors in our bodies and there are opiate receptors. It's almost like our bodies are tuned in, so to speak, to cannabis. But was the message positive? Was it? Was, Not always. Yeah. So, do you know what I mean? So so what's it like mm-hmm. for you having care, been a caregiver for your father who used a substance that you're saying helped him, made him, helped him to eat, to feel better. And then to be told by the medical school, the system that you're working in, no, this, this is not, not only is this not approved in many states and wasn't, um, is, is still not um, as a federal, uh, there's no federal law, uh, but then to go home and see how beneficial it was. You know, what's that like for you to get that, get two very different messages, your personal experience and then the medical system? Yeah, I, I, I remember thinking in my mind that, wow, you know, this is at my house and I could get arrested and not that I was using, but somebody's using on my property. Um, and ultimately for medical school, if you have a drug conviction, you can't get loans to go to medical school. So I, I would always think about those people who out there who perhaps were using cannabis and made a mistake and were um, incarcerated or convicted. And then think about that trajectory. Think about the inability to be able to get federal school loans to go to school and how that affects people. And so very multifactorial the way it affects me. Just thinking about it. And, and when I spoke to my medical school, my class about it, and I just, I asked them to be open-minded about it and to, to learn about it. Really, it's, you know, it's something to, we're all learning about. And so that's the wonderful thing about the culture of medicine is that we're constantly learning and our, our careers are lifelong learning. And so there has been research, there is published research uh, it's difficult to have randomized, double-blinded controlled studies because of a few factors. One is cost, because the federal government, if you're going to do a clinical study, you have to obtain the cannabis from the federal government, uh, and there's a lot of restrictions there. Um, and so we hit a lot of restrictions, but I, I ask my fellow physicians just to think a little bit outside of the box um, we, we use medications off label all the time that prove efficacious. So why not embrace what we can find in the evidence here and what people are saying and living? I mean, is the evidence of life not enough? So what's, so, so thinking now, you know, in your current practice, what are some ways that you talk to your patients about uh, end-of-life care and also cannabis use? So recognizing, um, do you talk about your dad's experiences? Is it more about educating patients? What's, what's, how do you negotiate that with patients? When it comes to end-of-life, there is an appropriate time to share experience. Uh, I remember when I was a, a medical student on one of my first rotations in patient internal medicine in the hospital and I met a woman whose father was just diagnosed with uh, with a terminal cancer and that's when a hug is appropriate that's when and 
an embrace and saying, I, I understand how you feel and really connecting with people on that human level. Cause that's what we are as healers is we're human. Um, and end of life care is such an important aspect of our lives because it's the end of our life and people are coming into questions and thoughts and feelings that are totally unexpected and really empowering people to live out their lives to the best they can and to take that quality of life and really focus on that quality when you don't have a lot of quality left or quantity left, I'm sorry. And when it comes to cannabis, I, I'm very gentle when I ask people because people take offense to it sometimes. Oh no, or why would you say that to me? Or So with my patients, it's more organic if it comes out. I have patients ask me, most, most of the time patients are asking me, what do you know about this? Do you think this would work for me? Um, and I can only offer what I know, which is we don't know a lot, but we're working on it. And so there are plenty of physicians in Pennsylvania now that will uh, recommend cannabis for patients that will allow them to go to a dispensary and receive some individualized care to kind of help figure out what would help them. But for me, when it comes to talking to patients and families and communities, I really hope to help others recognize the importance of, of time and to really find ways to connect because that's what life's all about is our social connections, <clears throat> is our, our observations, our feelings, and everyone walks on their own path but just embracing those people and helping them walk on a comfortable path is really what I hope to do in, in medicine. So one of the questions I want to ask and get into, we do this near the end of the podcast, is advice for people who are listening to this who are either a caregiver for somebody end of life um, or they themselves uh, have received a, a diagnosis. Um, but drawing from your own experiences as somebody who is a caregiver for your father. So when that label of a diagnosis or that notion that you're going to die uh, soon, that death is around the corner, I really would hope to inspire others to take that label away to remove that label, be it cancer, be it ALS, be it any other of the multitude of terminal diseases we have and be with that person and love that person and don't let that illness or that diagnosis get in the way of that love. These diagnoses are scary and it's easy to want to run and hide from them 
But what I realize through my experience and what I see in my patients' experiences is really embracing this life, to live the life you love, to love the life you live, is to walk each day in gratitude and to be present. Mindfulness was really wonderful. I, I, I've been practicing mindfulness for years and um, allowing yourself to be present in the moment rather than worrying about the past and going back and saying, oh, why did I do this and why did I do that? Or projecting into the future and saying, oh, I have to do this and have to do that. If I can just offer this advice is really to be here now and to be present in that moment, especially when you know that there's not going to be a multitude of moments left. Getting into the logistics, you had talked about the insurance part. You talked about the coordination of care. Any advice, thinking back for someone who says, their physician says, you have a terminal diagnosis, I recommend hospice. What are some first steps that people take? What are some second steps that people might take that worked for you, that were helpful? So with my dad, we actually chose one hospice company, but then didn't really care for that hospice company and changed and found one that we really loved. And so a word of advice would be to really do some research and it's not set in stone. It's like you're a physician. You go meet a physician and you don't really feel it. There's not really a good connection there. Don't stay in that relationship. You want it to be a positive, supportive relationship. And so navigating all the different companies is difficult, but just try it out. If it doesn't work, you can change. Nothing's permanent. And remembering that I think was very empowering to me because my father and I determined that the first company that we went with wasn't the right fit for us. And so that was, that's probably my best advice is to really do some research, but get to know these people because you're working pretty intimately with them and make sure there's a good connection there. Make sure that you feel supported and that ultimately it's patient-centered. I think my final question goes all the way back to near the beginning where you had to, you ended up telling your father the diagnosis. And I know that there's some caregivers who end up being the one to say, I would like to share this news, or they're there at the time that they receive the diagnosis. What advice do you have for somebody who's caring for somebody and they themselves have to give the diagnosis or they're there in the moment? What can they do or say or not say that would be helpful? I was lucky to have a really open, honest relationship with my dad. So when I told him that it was recommended that he go on hospice, that he's hospice deemed at this point. It was like talking to my best friend. So we had that relationship where we could be open and honest. And 
When I told him, he knew. I know, honey, what do we have to do? Mm-hmm. So, I and I, I think it's because we spoke about it and we had conversations. I knew what to do if and when things happened. And so having advanced care planning and actually having this idea of an advanced directive and knowing what your loved ones want in the end is really important because I knew what my dad would want. And so as his advocate, as his surrogate on the phone with these physicians, I knew in my heart what was best for him. And I was his voice. It's really important to have the conversation of what do you want? Absolutely. Do you want to be at home, not at home, with loved ones, hooked up to a ventilator, CPR, not CPR? In, in my experiences, again, working as a director of, of end of life, I'm sorry, advanced care planning um, specifically, so few of those conversations don't, I mean, there are so few of those conversations that occur, they just don't happen because we're afraid. We're afraid of knowing where to start and how to have that conversation. And, uh, and yet from other physicians, um, they have said to me, man, the person's in the ICU and now the family has to decide what to do. And they never had that conversation. So are you an advocate for starting the conversation early? about advanced care planning. Absolutely. I mean, my my father died at home where he wanted to die. Um, And I was with him until the last minute. And I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity to be with him. And knowing in my heart that that's what he wanted was an ease on the pain. It didn't end the pain, but it eased it a bit because I knew that that's what he wanted. We communicated that. And he did it the way he wanted to, which means the world. So any final thoughts, changes, regrets um, that you've had from your experience with this? No regrets. I live each day, one day at a time. Our journeys are all difficult in different ways. And I just wake up grateful every day for the opportunity to do what I do in practice as a healer. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a daughter. I am grateful for the opportunity to be a mother, to be a friend, to be engaged in society and to hopefully contribute to some progressive changes in humanity. We have one shot on this earth, one shot. So I just hope to inspire others to really appreciate this time and to make a difference. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gretchen, for joining us today on Health Stories. What really touching story, beautiful story, um, and some really important messages for all of us to consider about caring for a loved one, um, questions to ask, advanced care planning, um, medical cannabis as an option, uh, but to really live each life and each day to the fullest. So thank you for joining us. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.
If you are interested in hearing more about death and dying, I invite you to check out a podcast called On Death. You can find it at Twitter, On Death Podcast, where Eugene Kim asks four prompts. I am, before I die, when I die, and after I die. We invite you to check it out.